0: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in after a dramatic few days since we all last gathered together via this podcast. Who would have expected it? Well, actually, maybe we might have done a coup or an attempted coup in Washington instigated by the president himself and more U-turns from the government on the pandemic since we last gathered together Thinking about it, both highly predictable events, but there we go. So we've got a lot to cram in. If it's okay with you, I'll reflect a bit on those two dramas, but very much from from the British perspective, you know, the special relationship. I think it raises questions about that special relationship, which I'll reflect on uh, briefly. Then we'll come to your questions, fantastic questions, a lot relating to some of the things we explored last week, Uh, the use of referendums, whether they're any good, the situation in Northern Ireland compared with the rest of the UK, Johnson and how he is performing loads of brilliant questions and of course uh, what you do while you listen to the podcast more variations on that theme I know some of you don't like it when I reveal what people do listening to this podcast but it's it's becoming a well-being podcast as well as a politics one sort of well you know what I mean the the running and the press-ups and the I don't know ironing all those kind of things that go on during Uh, our reflections together so there'll be a bit of that bit of well-being but I promise you for those who don't like hearing that people are running marathons listening to this that it will be fleeting and the bulk of it will be reflecting and trying to make sense of extraordinary political developments. So where do we start? Well I guess if it's okay with you let's reflect on trump and the drama in washington it was cinematic on so many levels just obviously the immediate drama of protesters or the mob as uh, biden accurately portrays them rushing in up that capitol hill and into the building was cinematic but i kind of think one of the most interesting elements of the drama from a kind of shakespearean point of view was the collapse of the political partnership of Trump and Pence we've explored many collapses of political partnerships Blair Brown and others but this was quite extraordinary Pence the Christian evangelical somehow rationalizing that his Christianity was compatible with his loyalty to Trump realizing that he was allied to someone who to quote CNN quoting a source close to Trump was out of his mind and so there was a fascination watching Pence first of all refuse to do Trump's bidding in reference to blocking the transition of power and then his horror evidently at what Trump then generated uh, in Washington following his bizarre rally did any of you see the Trump speech at the uh, rally he held in Washington parts of it were incoherent and rambling and yet at the same time part of that sinister cinematic quality urging his followers to march on Washington whilst still the sitting president in Washington quite extraordinary but anyway that's been well covered What I think has been less well covered and understated is what that tells us about the so-called special relationship with the United Kingdom. The special relationship is usually hailed as central to British foreign policy, an overwhelming positive in terms of Britain's place in the world and has been really since the Suez crisis. It's been interesting for me watching events in Washington this week and people like Johnson having to condemn what he was witnessing um, because I've been writing a bit about the period in the late 1950s when the Suez crisis was a real reckoning for UK's place in the world then in that when it became clear that the US were not backing Uh, Eden's plans for Suez the Suez crisis erupted and Eden had to in effect give up on his plans and it was a moment then I think where Britain decided that it couldn't really act without America and that kind of intensified a sense of the indispensability of the special relationship but in many ways that special relationship since has been humiliating for the United Kingdom. I mean, just the images in relation to Trump, Theresa May in a deeply insecure position as Prime Minister, desperate to be the first foreign leader to visit Trump in Washington, holding his hands awkwardly as they walked out to greet the press in Washington offering him a state visit during which he offended her several times in interviews and statements but still hailing this figure even though we know from comments she and her advisers had made in the past what she really thought of this figure. And then Boris Johnson who in a way has more to answer for in that he was partly sincere in his admiration of Trump. We know that because uh, he was, when Foreign Secretary, or fleetingly out of the Cabinet, he uh, said at a meeting vis-a-vis Brexit, Trump would get Brexit done. He would be tough and get it done. And it was said in a way of unqualified admiration. And early Johnson, as Prime Minister, followed the trump playbook it might have been under the influence of cummings but a prime minister decides who he falls under the influence of and all that stuff about people versus parliament uh, was very trumpian so was the willingness to threaten to break international law so was the actual attempt to prorogue parliament that was ruled unlawful Uh, these all had echoes with trump so too does Johnson's casual relationship with the truth in his assertions whether it's to do with Brexit and what would happen after his Christmas Eve trade deal or indeed in relation to some of the things that have happened with the pandemic so it is simply not the case they're all now rapidly distancing themselves from Trump but there was a genuine uh, Uh, admiration of the Trump style or certainly a fascination and a desire to adopt some of the uh, approaches of Trump but that in a way is a separate issue Uh, we must each make our judgment about what that tells us about those who indicated a degree of admiration for Trump's leadership the special relationship is something more complex Is it so overwhelming in terms of the UK's place in the world that whoever is elected to the White House, the UK Prime Minister has to form a close relationship? Now, my answer to that question is no, but I discovered it's a sort of unfashionable response. I chaired a discussion on Radio 4's Week in Westminster on Saturday. I don't know if any of you heard it, but I asked each of... there were three other journalists there whether they thought there was some space for a British government and a British Prime Minister to distance themselves from a US president or a US administration that was clearly uh, off the wall uh, or dangerous in, in some respect or another and they all said and it was a kind of panel from left to right that the, the special relationship was too important to be jeopardised by the individuals involved. But I kind of disagree with that. It's not just about Trump, although he has been a freakish example. And it will obviously become easier to work with a president like Joe Biden. But if you look back, for example, to Tony Blair and his dealings, he was determined, Blair, to work closely with the Bush administration and without really deeply analyzing the nature of that administration. I mean in the light of what's happened since the Bush administration appears to be like a model of civilized democratic government but it was in reality a deeply divided administration uh, uh, divisions which reflected the confused state of the Republican party then the confusion and identity crisis within the republican party did not begin with trump far from it and in that bush administration you had rumsfeld and cheney two hardliners, unilateralists basically not bothered about going through the un when they embarked on their various military adventures all with catastrophic consequences and yet blair resolved to be seen to be working with them. In my view it was that resolution more than anything else that led him to support the war in Iraq. I know he's an adamant that he would have supported it under any circumstances. I think it's more to do with that relationship with America and when the Labour Party was seen as anti-American in the 1980s and unilateralist it lost elections and alienated Middle England and Blair thought my Middle England supporters, the newspapers they read, expect me to remain close to the US, whoever is in charge. And that assumption led him towards the darkness of Iraq, more than, more than a detailed assessment of the Middle East, a region he knew little about. And so the special relationship then had a dark outcome even for Thatcher who was of course hugely helped by her relationship with President Reagan in many respects certainly in terms of the way she was perceived on the international stage and indeed at home. I think incidentally the impact on both globally and at home had a huge Uh, Impact on Tony Blair. But at key moments, she too uh, suffered from the special relationship, or the special relationship didn't deliver. It's easy to forget now that uh, when she began her Falklands War adventure, so pivotal to her premiership in some respects, um, Reagan was ambiguous. He was also close to the Argentinian leadership at the time. And didn't at first give Thatcher the unequivocal support that she had hoped for and indeed anticipated. And when he embarked on one of his minor military adventures, he didn't tell Thatcher in advance. And there's a recording, I think it's available on the Thatcher Foundation or somewhere, of a conversation she and Reagan had after that I can't remember which of the silly little military adventures it was it wasn't a big one Uh, she admonished Reagan for not telling her in advance and so quite often America decides for itself but apparently Britain can't and given the focus on sovereignty in the debate about the European Union it begs the question is the UK sovereign in relation to the US when often it has erratic administrations, Trump the most extreme, but the Bush administration was deeply divided and unstable. And yet many conservatives who are horrified by the European Union and it's what they see as its outrageous threat to democratic sovereignty are more than willing to accept this subservience to the United States. It's very curious. Take a sort of psychoanalyst to work it out, I think. It's not about politics. But there we are. Trump generated the same hunger to be seen with him, but from British prime ministers as anybody else. And no doubt now they will all claim that they were wary and that they're much closer to Joe Biden, number 10 of briefing, there's far more common ground with the Biden presidency. But boy did they try and woo Trump and had hopes for Trump. So I suppose you could say that Boris Johnson has done a U-turn in his relationship with president trump i only say that because i want to do a segue briefly to reflect on his u-turns on the pandemic for those of you who were listening to the last week's podcast i did say by the time you were listening there would probably have been a u-turn on the opening of schools and of course there was which raises a really interesting question for me which is when boris johnson gave his interview to andrew marr the day before he closed the schools and when he said if you remember we talked about it i think in the podcast that the schools uh, would remain open in most areas and schools were safe what was going through his mind because prime ministers even him prepare for these interviews. They are quite a big moment for a Prime Minister. The New Year interview, more than 2 million people watching on BBC One. It will be widely reported afterwards, all political journalists watching. You kind of go through the possible questions, and he would have done with his new media advisor, Allegra Stratton, who used to work at the BBC, understands political interviews in a way that his previous duo Uh, Lee Kane and Dominic Cummings didn't they weren't from the broadcasting world they didn't understand it it's not their fault it's a different language to print not that they fully understood print either Uh, but he would have been prepared so surely uh, he would have gone through possible sequences over school closures before opening his mouth live on BBC One And therefore why did he not find a form of words that didn't suggest a screeching U-turn more than just over 24 hours later? What is it about him that cannot see ahead? Now, part of the answer is obviously he wanted schools to stay open, clearly. But he must have known there was quite a big chance they would have to close. I mean, he's not, you know, he, he has, trouble focusing on things for very long but he will have read the data so I and I I don't really know the answer beyond this I don't think he thinks through consequences consequences are a key to politics if you do x y is likely to happen and if not y what about Z? Blair and Brown were geniuses at consequences. They thought through everything, to the point sometimes of paralysis, made them scared to do anything because they knew if they did X, Y might well follow, and Y was hellish and to be avoided. But Johnson doesn't. It's very interesting if reading his political columns when he wrote them for The Telegraph, if you can call them political. Most columnists, certainly me, and I was speaking to George Parker, he was one of the panellists on the week in Westminster on Saturday, he writes long pieces of analysis for the Financial Times. And part of what you do is look at the current situation, speak to people about what they think is likely to happen next, and report that, and analyse it. Johnson never did. His columns were provocative, polemical, funny sometimes. Sometimes. Not as funny as some people seem to think they were. But he never really looked ahead and said, well, you know, so-and-so, I don't know, Cameron or whoever uh, he was writing about, Blair, is in this position. What happens if he ends up in that position? He was never interested in consequences. And I just don't think he can think ahead like that and so it's all immediate so he 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 doesn't do anything until he's faced with a nightmarish situation if he doesn't act and then he acts and then he doesn't think about those consequences until he has to act again and so there will be more constraints to come but not until he decides it at the final moment consequences it's, by the way, many political leaders are not brilliant on consequences. Margaret Thatcher, who was a very sharp reader of the political stage, couldn't think through and was a master of policy detail, uh, one of the, the best at reading everything in, in depth, but she didn't think through consequences, e.g. if you sell council houses to the private sector and hail this as a great move, what do you do about the lack of affordable rented accommodation she did the first bit but not address the consequence of that action but she was a master of detail compared with boris johnson who doesn't do detail and is indifferent to consequences anyway that's enough of me reflecting on what's happening uh, you know we're living through such wild times i could go on for ages but you have also been reflecting brilliantly as well so let's turn now to your questions uh one from hugo smith hugo he's got the killer virus i'm sorry i shouldn't call it killer virus He's he tells me that well this is what hugo says uh, uh we uh, have improved a bit this week um, but the experience we've had with the virus is that you have some good and bad days. Uh, Hugo, I hope you are getting more good days. Um, and he asked a question about what the impact on the BBC will be of the launch of GB News, this rolling news channel that Andrew Neal is launching. Uh, it's not the only one, Rupert Murdoch's launching one as well it's a fascinating question and no one will know until we see finally what form this uh, rolling GB news takes. Andrew Neil says one thing which I think is interesting, that the flaw of the rolling news that we have at the moment is that it's just one damn thing after another. Nothing's allowed to breathe. It's, you know, you have a short discussion or an interview with one person for about a minute, then you move on. And uh, Sky did it so the BBC feels it has to do it and it's very difficult there's a program which I take part in sometimes on BBC News 24 called Dateline which is a great discussion with three correspondents one, one British journalist a couple from other countries around the world and you look at three big news stories from around the world usually one from the UK uh, two from elsewhere and that program I think used to last for 45 minutes maybe longer uh, it's now down to 28 minutes and uh, people tweet it's not long enough they like it they want room to breathe and I think Andrew Neil might give items room to breathe and there'll be proper discussion but if it's just another right-wing outlet uh, with the kind of Fox News slant to it uh, well if that's going to happen and that with the Murdoch one too um, we will need a kind of CNN equivalent to counter that the BBC rolling news channel I think would be hugely improved if it dared to vary that one damn thing after another feel to it Um, and it's got the space it's got 24 hours so why not let discussions breathe more and uh, so on so you know let's wait and see but um, what we don't want is a kind of the BBC Sky and then a kind of two variations on Fox News but I've genuinely no idea whether it will be like that or whether it will be much more thought through and interesting. Now, last week I said something a bit glib actually about Brexit and how Northern Ireland appeared to be in the best of uh, both worlds because the Irish government was going to extend the Erasmus scheme for students in Northern Ireland and the health insurance scheme and kind of things. Anyway, uh, an important point from Paul Arbuthnot who. Uh, who By the way, he says uh, he listens to the podcast on many long walks and it brightens them up. Well, thank you so much. I'm sure the walks are beautiful anyway, but um, it's great if you're listening to the podcast. Now, this is interesting. Paul says, I'm from Northern Ireland and live in the Republic of Ireland. And I get back home at every opportunity and my heart is there. You mentioned that Northern Ireland was now in the best of both worlds as a result of the protocol, which incidentally is itself provisional. Many things still have to be sorted out. That's me speaking. But he says, I'm not quite sure that is the reality on the ground. When speaking with friends and family back up in Northern Ireland, they report severe delays in the food supply chain. Amazon and other big firms are limiting their products on sale to Northern Ireland. Uh, And I agree. Uh, it, It seems to me that uh, Northern Ireland is being treated differently in many respects and quite a lot of them at the moment negative negative. and the shortages which I think by the way will spread to the rest of the United Kingdom uh, have begun in Northern Ireland and it is far from the best of the both worlds so thank you so much for correcting me and it's interesting to get that perspective from someone who lives in the Republic uh, but is from Northern Ireland now a couple of points we were talking about referendums last week in the podcast and I was going to say what a disaster they are as a device to decide things partly because they don't decide anything the issue just goes on and on it isn't a definitive end but Andrew Anderson uh, writes uh, that the last one uh, this is in Scotland uh, was just disastrously managed Osborne and Cameron took the l- Oh, sorry, no, he's talking about the Brexit referendum, I apologise. Osborne and Cameron took the wrong lesson from the Indy Ref. They nearly botched and thought Project Fear 2 would win it. Uh, The BBC treated it as a Tory psychodrama. This is the Brexit referendum, partly because they thought it was a foregone conclusion. Uh, Nobody made a positive case for the EU in England, and the result was 20-plus years of chickens coming home to roost. Uh, and all of that's uh, true, Andrew, but that I don't think undermines the point about the, the dangers of referendums. Uh, I agree, if a referendum is launched, a campaign can go in any uh, way possible, and one side can blow it, as the Remain side clearly did, and they did learn the wrong lessons from the Indy Ref, and Osborne and Cameron were, in many ways, naive campaigners. Still, it doesn't challenge my kind of argument, is that the thing is never, ever resolved. We're going to be talking about Brexit for years. We're talking about it in this podcast coming up soon, I think. Um, Maybe not. Let's see. We already have, from Paul, who made the point about the situation in Northern Ireland. It's unresolved. Scotland evidently unresolved. So you're right to say it was a disastrous campaign. Uh, But I think the decision to call the referendum was the bigger disaster. Here's an interesting point on referendums as well, a different one. It's from Mark Howes. Mark says, uh, here in Switzerland, my wife and I eagerly await your podcast each week. Oh, that's thrilling to hear. Uh, Thank you. Uh, We're we're, we're international these days uh, around the world. And he says, sadly, I must take issue with your criticism of referendums. Clearly, the Brexit referendum was a disaster. And the UK experience with that and other attempts haven't been good. You can say that again. But I believe that it's more a problem of UK culture and mechanisms. Here in Switzerland, of course, yeah, we have regular referendums throughout the year. And they're a key to direct democracy in which we take great pride. There are, however, major differences with those held in the UK. The first is that they're generally detailed and specific, allowing for informed and intelligent discussion. The second is that the level of political awareness and involvement seems much higher in Switzerland than in the UK. The net result is that most decisions taken by the people at large in a referendum are sensible and don't lead to upheaval. My point is that it's, it's not the principle of a referendum that's the problem, but how it's organised and used by whom. Yeah, good points. Mark adds, I'm a naturalised Swiss citizen, having lived here for 50 years with a short sojourn in the US, but I was born and educated in the UK. So I take close interest in the politics of the three countries of which I have experience. So you, the Economist and the New York Times, plus the Swiss media, keep me well informed. Well, I'm pleased to be up with all of those, uh, Mark, and thank you. I I agree. I think you make a key point. Uh, There was a question last week, a very good question, about Scotland. If not to be resolved by referendum how? And I couldn't answer it, and maybe you have, that the whole culture of referendums in Britain have to be changed. They have to be about detail, and they have to be well-informed, and that campaigns have to be controlled in a way that somehow rather they are detailed rather than emotive and sloganizing battles. So anyway, so... Perhaps you're guiding us towards some solution to this. Mark adds, I hope that AppQuery COVID we should be able to come to King's Place to take part live in one of your sessions. Well, that would be great, Mark. Do let us know if you are coming over for it. Um, And and definitely worth flying over just for rock and roll politics at King's Place. Thank you. A kind of related question from Joe Thomas, uh, who, who signs off as Laundry Joe. Joe is one of those who listens to the podcast sorting out his laundry. Very productive way of spending time with the podcast. Clean clothes at the end of it. Joe says, can Scottish Labour do anything to rebuild or is it a dead party walking? Can Scottish Labour draw strength from the example of Ruth Davidson? who improved the prospects and profile of Scottish Conservatives? Was she a one-off that Labour can't hope to replicate? He also makes a very interesting point. Would it be more effective for Labour to emphasise that it's a British party and overtly reject federalism and further devolution and emphasise the equal rights of UK citizens to strong public services, which are dependent on a unified state? Now that's I think that's kind of interesting both questions. Ruth Davidson was fascinating. She's the type of leader I'm suspicious of because it was amazing down at Westminster uh, the the sort of George Osborne wing of the Tory party. You heard them all saying God Ruth Davidson she's our answer. We've got to get her down here. She's brilliant. She could win an election for the Tories, modernize the Tories. And There's no doubt she revived the Scottish Conservatives but she was never fully tested by power. You can say what you like about Nicola Sturgeon and you can make judgments on her as she is managing power but she is tested by power. Johnson at Westminster is tested by power. Ruth Davidson was a charismatic, energetic, witty, attractive public figure and in her verve and wit unquestionably revived Scottish conservatism but a she didn't last the course and I'm always suspicious of people who don't last the course in politics and b I wonder whether that would have been enough say if she had moved down to Westminster to lead the Tory party there Uh, for a start she would have been very divisive she was a Remainer And this is now a Brexit party in all but name, uh, the National Tory Party. So I have my doubts about that. But your other point is very interesting. I wonder, and the implication is that perhaps Keir Starmer is going down the wrong route by looking at Devo Max and bringing back Gordon Brown to advise. I got a few emails from uh, people in Scotland saying, you know, it's over for Gordon Brown he was a big figure once but not now so maybe the route to take is absolutely to challenge the idea that more power is required for Scotland Scotland and the Parliament and for Labour to go for a kind of wholehearted unionist case it's uh, I don't know the answer to that but I think you raise a very very interesting question and uh, oh yeah this is quite interesting from Chris Buck had a lot of questions about my Christmas podcast the festive look at political interviews you know light-hearted thing to do on Christmas day and uh, for those of you who weren't on that one uh, I talked about a Tony Benn Brian Warden interview uh, from 1981 and had a great email last week which I referred to briefly where one of the Uh, listeners could remember some of the exchange uh haven't got time yet to go through that one i will do because it was so interesting and others have said where can we get this interview it's from 1981 two heavyweights at the height of their power walden and ben and we're all still looking and chris buck has written in to say uh oh he listens when he's either cooking or out for a for a walk a lot of less energetic contributions this week no runners but how fruitful cooking or walking uh he's uh tried searching for the weekend world interview with ben and he's got the date now he thinks i thought it was april 1981 he's got it down to the 31st of may 1981 that must be the one and he he's discovered a bfi entry and uh has got the link but if anyone wants to it's in the bfi catalogue but he hasn't yet seen the interview he suggests if anyone's got a copy they could upload it to youtube it's worth it it's like listening to music the two of them were great masters of the english language they had such tonal variety they were in such different places politically Warden, a disillusioned labour mp on the right falling in love with thatcherism and margaret thatcher tony Benn, this articulate figure Uh, putting the case for accountability within the Labour Party and beyond uh, uh, as he had made the bid to go for the deputy leadership. It was high drama and very compelling, my favourite interview, but we can't find it to relive it. Now how long have we been going for? Let me just uh, check. Yeah, we've been going over for over 30 minutes, so just uh, one uh, quick last one from Martin Jones in uh, Birmingham, and he, oh, a bit of activity at last, he listens to the podcast while out running, I don't know how far you go, uh, we have 10k, 5 miles, 6 miles from one of the emailers last week from Scotland, anyway, uh, Martin makes this point, and it's, it's worth making political careers as you've outlined many times the whim of events and circumstances they're partly at the whim of events and circumstances also partly character but not wholly character how therefore can you explain boris johnson continuing to enjoy the success he does and he lists them so i hope if you're running take a deep breath elected mayor of london a labor city twice elected as an mp wins Brexit referendum, appointed foreign secretary, resigns before sacked, elected Tory leader, becomes, to- uh, becomes PM, wins Tory landslide, secures withdrawal agreement with the EU, isolating Northern Ireland, after nearly 50 years of membership and Tory infighting, secures UK leaving the EU. Yeah, and that's, it's a long list of political triumphs, and it is worth putting those forward because, as ever with political leaders, uh, the caricature is not enough. The caricature that probably a lot of us have at the moment in our minds, and it is largely correct, is a prime minister out of his depth, as we've discussed many times with the pandemic and who has negotiated a Brexit deal for which there will be, to use that word I used earlier, consequences. And the consequences will be pretty, we're already starting to see it, endless border friction. And we've heard about the situation in Northern Ireland. And yet there are a series of political uh, triumphs which blur that caricature. And the temptation is to say, he's good at politics and evidently on one level he must be but I think even that is complicated I think he is good at seizing moments and opportunities and he is self-absorbed enough to see his place in the political chaos and how to make the most of that space But it is unquestionably the case that compared with others who've had a go, Cameron, May and others who hope to have a go, look at those Tory candidates in that Tory leadership contest, Gove, Stuart, Raab, uh, Sajid Javid, they have got nowhere near this figure. And only this figure, I suspect, could have won Labour London in quite the way That he did so there is an appeal there it's I think an appeal to uh, a kind of sense of well here is a a character uh, and a character who can both uh, do tonal variety have you noticed how I uh, there was a time when I wondered how he would ever do much more beyond humor but he does manage to do more than humor even though he struggles sometimes with the detail he's very hesitant at these press conferences but the hesitancy probably appeals to some who see in him now a troubled figure trying his best and they therefore are less critical than they might have been but anyway you raise interesting uh, I've got to think it through uh, but you're right there is another side there always is no leader it's a theme of my book on prime ministers still available Uh, in good bookshops and on amazon Uh, but it is one of the themes you know for those of you who've read it that the caricatures of prime ministers do not make sense what we choose to see is not really what is in front of our eyes and that even applies to the current occupant of number 10 blimey we have gone on for more than i vowed to i've broken a pledge to you i said it would all be around half an hour it's a bit longer than that but even now i haven't got through uh many of the brilliant questions so there will be more to come perhaps in weeks when there haven't been an attempted coup by the president against the administration in washington that he is the overall head of etc etc but please keep on sending the emails and your points uh they're fantastic and the address is you must know it by now, but Steve Rick 14 at iCloud.com. steverick14 at iCloud.com. Oh, yeah, also, don't forget, please get your tickets for King's Place, the live stream, 7pm, the latest lockdown special on January the 20th. Tickets available on the King's Place website now. So, something to look forward to in the darkness january the 20th thanks so much for taking part for doing all the things you do while you listen to the podcast who knows where we'll be next week but let's all get together for rock and roll politics thank you